Welcome to Trial Lawyer View, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We will tell the stories about trial lawyers go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer View. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer View is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. Instead, my day job is Chief Executive Officer of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise at settlement, like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement planning. Joining me today on Trial Lawyer View is Brian Poulter. He's an outstanding trial lawyer practicing in uh, the Los Angeles area with the Stalwart Law Group. His practice focuses on representing individuals and their families with personal injury and wrongful death. Brian has litigated and tried to verdict numerous commercial trucking, premises liability, and product liability cases as well as countless auto, dangerous conditions, security, excessive force, and severe pedestrian and bicyclist injury cases. Brian also has extensive experience representing minors and the elderly in school liability and elder abuse cases. Through hard work, compassion, and creativity, Brian has obtained amazing results at trial and through settlement, recovering hundreds of millions of dollars for his deserving clients over the years against negligent individuals, public entities, school districts and corporations. Uh, Let me read a little bit of his bio. Brian joined the team at Stalwart Law Group in December 2018 to run the firm's personal injury practice. Before joining the team, Brian cut his teeth at Panache Boyle. uh, And that's one of the nation's most preeminent personal injury law firms. Uh, While at PSB, Brian was fortunate enough to work side by side with some of the best plaintiff attorney trial lawyers in the country. Um, And Uh, He's litigated highly complex catastrophic injury and wrongful death cases uh, while at PSB. He also served as the firm's handling attorney for the Porter Ranch litigation, which stemmed from the October 2015 massive gas injection well blowout of well SS25 in the Aliso Canyon natural gas storage facility operated by Southern California Gas Company. Brian personally oversaw over 6,000 client cases. The Porter Ranch litigation settled for $1.8 billion in 2021. Um, He's had numerous honors and awards, Southern California Super Lawyers Rising Star Up and Coming, Top 100, 21 and 22, Calat Trial Lawyer of the Year Semifinalist 2020, Southern California Super Lawyers, Lawyers Rising Star Personal Injury 2018 to 2022, National Trial Lawyers Top 40 Under 40, Tala Rising Star semifinalist, uh, Aboda Sidebar Program, Million Dollar Advocates Forum, Million Dollar Verdict Club. Uh, Brian did his undergraduate degree at Texas State and graduated from Loyola Law School. Brian, welcome to Trial Law Review. Great to have you as a guest and thank you for joining me today. Uh, thank you so much for having me on um, and thank you for the warm introduction. I appreciate it. So before talking about uh, all the law stuff, I wanted to ask you a question about your background uh, in doing my research for the podcast. 
Um, I, I had read that you grew up in a blue collar working family household, uh, as did I. Part of your success, you credit your parents' work ethic. Um, that interested me because I, I do as well. My parents didn't go to college, but they were highly successful business people due to their hard work. Uh, can you talk about the back, your background and how you've used it to your advantage as a trial lawyer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I grew up in a small town called Port Natchez, and I tell everybody Beaumont because it's the closest thing to a real city that anybody <laughs> kind of knows anything about. Um, it's a town of about 9,000 people. Uh, the only thing that really matters there is faith, family, and football, and in that order. And um, yeah, my, my dad was an oil and gas man. He worked at Texaco and Shell his entire career. I think he, he retired about three years ago after 40 something year career. My mom was by and large pretty much a homemaker, but also worked in the title business and was a school secretary for a while. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a town where probably 99% of the people grew up there, still live there. Um, not many people move away and move out, but um, from a very, very early age, school was very important to my parents. Um, one of the things that I always appreciated the most about them was that they encouraged both my sister and me to, I mean, move out of the house, go to college, experience uh, life outside of the hometown. And, um, you know, that in addition to you know, my dad was very, very much in sports. He was my baseball coach, my football coach, my entire life growing up, a uh, very competitive guy and just instilled in me kind of a work ethic and, and a, a don't quit attitude that definitely translates to the courtroom. Um, just one small aside, a lot of the stuff that I also pull into the courtroom from my, from my background and where I grew up is, um, you know, depending on the jurisdiction, if I'm out in, Bakersfield, for example, or um, I had a case up in Alturas, which is Modoc County, very rural areas and very blue collar. Um, you know, I changed the way that I dress. I wear cowboy boots. Um, you know, if I'm in downtown LA, I'm wearing nice suits and nice shoes and, and fancy socks. But if I'm in a, a blue collar town, I, I kind of tap into my roots. Yeah, it's funny how um, similar our backgrounds are, you know, in terms of the, the household and the influence. I, I know for me that seeing my parents build a company is sort of what led me ultimately to entrepreneurship um, uh, after after being a litigator for, for a number of years out of law school. So it, it's it's funny how that that shapes us ultimately. But, you know, I, I was wondering... Um, how you decided to go to law school, because um, from my research, I think like me, it wasn't something that you had always planned to do. Yeah, no, it definitely wasn't. Um, it's going to sound really shallow, <laughs> the story, how this all came about. Um, I graduated from school when I was working at Liberty Mutual, actually. I was selling auto home and life insurance. Um, you know, I, I had a lot of fun in college. Grades weren't really on the foremost of my mind. And um, so I, I came out of school with really not many job options. And so I started working for Liberty Mutual, selling auto home and life insurance. I did really well. Uh, I, was, I was good at it. Um, just being able to talk to people, I think it translates to the courtroom, right? Being relatable, personable. Um, it, it, essentially what we're doing in the courtroom is sales. You know, we're selling ourselves, we're selling our clients and we're selling our case. 
And so I did that for two or three years, um, was really successful at it, but just it, it wasn't fulfilling for me at all. And at the time I was uh, dating a young lady who was a first year in medical school. And they, I never had any aspirations to go to medical school. I'm not that smart, but um, the idea of grad school and kind of getting a, a higher education degree appealed to me. I think looking back on it now at the time, I thought it was, I thought it was a status thing. You know, I, I didn't know anything really about the law. I just knew that, you know, by and large lawyers were looked upon as a certain way and right or wrong for the reasons why I went, that's why I went. And what I found though, once I got there was that one, I had a renewed motivation to actually study and learn. Whereas um, a lot of the people that I went to law school with that jumped straight from undergrad to law school, it was just a continuation of the same hamster wheel that they had been on and weren't really motivated to study. And so once I got there, I did my first year at St. Mary's University in San Antonio. Um, and I knew that I wanted to transfer schools. I just didn't know to where. And so what I did is uh, I went in there, worked really hard. I graduated top 2% after the first year and then put in a bunch of transfer applications and wound up at Loyola um, by and large because of their, their burn trial advocacy program. They're consistently ranked top five in the nation for uh, producing young trial lawyers. And that was, that was really appealing to me. Yeah, it's funny. I was a psychology major undergrad and the only reason I started to think about law school was uh, an advisor who was uh, a, a trusted uh, person that I talked to just about, you know, I, I didn't want to go get another degree in psychology, an advanced degree in psychology and suggested that I, I consider law school. And and I, I just started taking some legal studies classes before I graduated, took a year off and then went to law school and then, you know, really got um, enticed by the the atmosphere as a 1L and, and absolutely loved my my time in law school. I mean, it was tough. You know, it's not easy, but, you know, the, the educational experience and and the experience of being an advocate, you know, whether it was, you know, doing appellate arguments or doing some of the mock trial stuff. And, and I, that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because I, I, I know that you competed at a very high level with the mock trial program at Loyola. Is that ultimately what kindled your passion for being a trial lawyer? hundred um, percent. So when I was in undergraduate, they had this program called the professional sales program. And it was essentially the same thing. You get a little fact pattern, you know, here's your product. This is your target. Uh, business to business customer that you're going to sell to. We did these competitions and for whatever reason, I actually enjoyed it. Um, but so I knew that after year one, I think it was like one of my first classes, one of the professors was like, who here wants to be a litigator? Who here wants to be a transactional attorney? And I didn't even know what either term meant. Right. And so I see everybody raising their hands and I'm like, looking around, I felt so stupid. I didn't even know what the hell that meant. Um, but then obviously figured it out um, and realized that, you know, I guess I didn't know it at the time, but looking back on it, my idea of a lawyer was someone in trial in the courtroom. And so whenever I whenever I started kind of immersing myself in my studies my first year and looking at places to transfer schools to and 
learning about mock trial programs and what that meant, and then finding Loyola and seeing all the success that they had with the burn team, uh, it just completely made sense. And I, I transferred schools and the tryouts had already happened for the burn team. And so I went to the, the professor, a woman by the name of Susan Poles, uh, who I credit a lot of my, my trial skills to. And I, I basically begged her to let me try out late. And she told me no. And two students, I think, either quit or dropped out. And so she called me or emailed me something. And I did a, a tryout. And then that started the next two years of my life being completely immersed Monday, Wednesday nights from 6 to 10 p.m. And then Saturdays and Sundays, sometimes from 8 a.m. to midnight, um, you know, learning these fact patterns, learning how to argue evidence, cross-examination skills, opening, closing, I mean, everything, you name it. And it was, I, it was, I was hooked immediately, 100%. Well, let's talk about how that actually has translated into, you know, your practice. So I, as a plaintiff attorney handling complex catastrophic cases, I've seen some of your impressive results. I wanted you to ask you about the Phillips elder abuse case. The the video of her falling was just incredibly hard to watch. And I, I know you took over 30 depots, had a quarter of a million dollars invested in that case, and that the highest pretrial offer was $150,000. Um, um, and that you know, I was just, when, when I saw um, what your end result was, um, and knowing that you, you had a high low that you rejected, uh, and, but prevailed at trial. Can you talk about your approach to that case and why you ultimately won it? Yeah. So that's, <laughs> so that was the first elder abuse that I had ever litigated. Um, I had a friend refer me to the case and, um, I, I had never, litigated elder abuse. I didn't know anything about it at all. Um, and, um, so I, 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 I remember calling, I forget it. Oh, a woman by the name of, I believe it was Marilyn Smith, I believe it was. And she had put out some email on, on a plaintiff's friendly listserv. You know, if anybody needs any help with this, give me a call. So I called her, picked her brain, um, she was immensely helpful. And then I, I hired an expert and I just, I just dove in head first. Um, so the elder abuse case, Cheryl Phillips, um, you know, we now have an elder abuse department at Stalwart and one of the lawyers at our, at our firm, Sean O'Neill, he's incredibly smart. He's been doing this, these cases his entire career. And he told me that if he had been here, when that case came through the door, he would have rejected it. And the reason being was that um, if you watch the video, the amount of time that the, the young lady that was helping her walk, they call it escorting, the young lady that was helping her walk was only turned her head for a split second. And then that's when our client fell over her, her walker and broke her neck. But um, yeah, I mean, I just, maybe it was just blind, blind dumb naivete, if you want to call it that. I just... I felt like something was wrong and that somebody messed up and I just kind of jumped head first, you know? You know, one of the things that amazes me about plaintiff's lawyers is that support system that has been created through the listservs and other places where someone who's handled a case like that type of case can get you started and pointed in the right direction, but it takes, you know, uh, 
a pretty talented litigator to to be able to then translate that into that kind of uh, impressive end result. I, I know that you've achieved some similarly impressive results in severe injury cases involving minors who've been injured at, at school. Can you talk about your approach to school liability cases and how those results have impacted change in, in the conduct of those schools? Yeah, for sure. Um, one of the things that I'll say about the school cases at the outset is um, they, this is just my personal experience and I'm not trying to paint every school district with a broad brush here. I think there are schools that do a lot of great work and are uh, have systems in place to protect minors from sexual assault or physical harm. Uh, my wife works at a school. Um, but my personal experience in the cases in the schools, in the school districts that I've sued, they're some of the, the most untrustworthy and lying entities that I've faced in my career. Hiding documents, not producing evidence, uh, teachers and staff that will look you straight in your eye and lie to you through their teeth and blame everything on these kids saying, you know, they should have known better. Um, it's pretty disgusting actually. And, um, I, you know, I think the re one of the reasons why I'm drawn most to minor cases, whether it's sexual assault or abuse or physical harm, or whether it's elder abuse or elder neglect is because they're kind of the two members of our society that are, are the most vulnerable. If, if you have like a spectrum of vulnerability, right? You've got elderly people who, for whatever reason, whether it's early onset Alzheimer's dementia, can't take care of themselves anymore. You have families that are not equipped with the tools to take care of them themselves. And so they, you know, they put trust in these facilities to uh, take care of their loved ones, right? And then obviously school, I mean, it's compulsory, right? Well, if you're not doing, if you're not doing homeschool, you're sending your kids off to school by and large because, I mean, shit, let's be honest, you want them out of the house. But obviously you want them to get a good education, but you want to make sure that while they're there, that they're safe. Um, and we had this one case, um, it was against a private uh, Orthodox Jewish school up in Sherman Oaks, I believe. And there was, our client was an 11 year old boy who uh, skipped class, lied to his teacher, skipped class, and then slid down a handrail, fell over, it fell about 13 feet and uh, cracked his skull and had two subdural hematomas. And so, you know, looking at it at face value, it's like, well, this kid was 11 years old, he lied to his teachers, he skipped class, he's doing stuff that he knows he's not supposed to be doing you know, what really is the issue of the liability on the school. And the more and more that we dug in that case, we found out that they did not have a mandatory attendance policy. So with each class that they went to from day to day, no one took attendance and they could literally say, hey, we want to go to Rabbi so-and-so's class for this period instead of this one. Is that okay? And they would let them do that. And so they had no system to keep track or control of any of the students. So what originally started as a premises liability case saying, all right, you should have had a guardrail above and beyond the 50, 42 inch um, rail that these kids were sliding on. But what it ended up turning into was something far more just practical and simple, 
which was you got to have an attendance policy. If you don't know where these kids are at, then what the hell are you doing, right? So um, I just find those cases incredibly rewarding and fun, and especially when you have school cases where they're not giving you information. Um, you know, I have a phrase, I'm reasonable until someone gives me a reason to be unreasonable. And when you give me a reason to be unreasonable, there's no turning back. And I really, really dig my heels in on those types of cases. And something that you, you said about these cases really um, connected for me, which is the, you know, the, the protection of the vulnerable. And it's something that um, I talk about with our team, with what we do, that, that opportunity we have to help people who, you know, have been put into a vulnerable state because of, of what's happened to them. But there's also that segment of the population, the, the elderly, the young who, you know, when they're not properly protected and injured, um, what you do is uh, an incredible thing to make sure that those places that are not protecting the vulnerable properly are, are held to account for that. So, you know, that, that's a very important function that uh, trial lawyers serve. And it, it just struck me when you were talking about it. I, I'm curious with these, these types of catastrophic cases, you know, how, how are you able to empathize with clients to tell their story to the jury, focusing on what they've been left with after suffering these injuries? If, if you've got the top three things that you could talk about that you do to in these cases to help make sure that you're able to convey empathetically about, you know, what this client has, has been through and is going through. Yeah. Um, one thing that I wanted to mention before I jump into that too, in the context of the elder abuse cases, um, you know, by and large, most, if not all of those cases, we file motions for trial preference immediately. Uh, which in California sets the trial date within 120 days. So going back to the, the Phillips case that we were talking about earlier, you know, we filed a motion for trial preference two months after filing and within 120 days we were in trial. So those 30 depositions and everything that happened happened within 120 days. And, you know, you're, you're really fighting against the clock, right? Because in California, at least if your client dies, she loses the right to claim emotional pain and suffering damages, both past and future, which in that trial, that five and a half million dollar verdict, 100% of that was all emotional pain and suffering damages. None of it was for medical bills. And so, you know, we're leading up to trial and they're throwing a little bit more money at us and credit to the daughter, Lydia, she wasn't putting up with anybody's bullshit and she wanted her day in court. So kind of going back to your question of how do you convey empathy in a situation like that, it's really easy because if, if the family is ready to go, then there's no, there's no reason to doubt anything in your mind, right? I mean, sometimes our own worst enemy is our own self-doubt. And with, with the Cheryl Phillips case, you know, I, I really focused more on what did the defendant do that got us there? and their bad conduct. I mean, it's probably similar to the reptile theory. I've never read the book, so, um, but it probably is. But I always look, how can I piss people off? Because if I go in there and I'm like hat in hand and I'm like, woe is me and you know, my poor client, my poor client, I feel like most people are like, hey, we've all got our own problems. 
you know, sorry that your client's hurt or whatever, but you know, I, I really don't care. Um, so I focus more on, on the bad actor and all the stuff that they've done leading up to that point to really polarize the jury and get it pissed off. That's, that's my, that's where I go. And then, then at the end, once you sufficiently got enough head nods by the jury and they're writing your numbers down and things like that, you know, then you obviously weave in kind of more so day in the life type stuff. But, um, I tend to focus more on the bad actor. So I, I wanted to ask you about the case involving Craig Buck, um, uh, as an avid cyclist and someone who was, um, struck by a motorist, um, in similar fashion, I, I wanted to hear about that case, um, in, in terms of the, the importance with violence against cyclists. Cause I, I know over the years I started riding and racing when I was 13 years old. So uh, I, I did it for a very long time at, at a very high level. And I did a lot of training on the roads here around central Florida. And, you know, I had everything from, um, someone pulling up next to me and pouring a big gulp over my head, uh, someone reaching out uh, of an open window and slapping me on the back as the car went by, you know, I mean, all kinds of, and still, you know, you still get people that punish past you where they get really close to you, um, because they, they don't like that you're on the road. Um, so I'm curious uh, about this just because it is something that um, has impacted my life, you know, when I got hit. Yeah. Um, first of all, I mean, it's a huge problem. As you know, you, you've just explained a lot of um, your own personal experiences. Uh, Craig Buck, such an amazing client family. Craig Buck was a two-time Olympic gold medalist in volleyball. And is widely regarded as one of the best. I believe the term, I apologize to any volleyball fans out there. I think it's mid attacker or something like that. Uh, but was widely regarded as probably the best to ever do it at his position. And as you can imagine, long, lanky guy. I think he was 6'10", uh, 6'9", 6'10", somewhere around there. Um, but as you know, the, the cycling community is very close. Um, whether it's through social media um, gatherings, events. It, it's a very tight knit group and it, for, for good reason. I mean, you guys are experiencing uh, violence and aggression on the streets on a daily basis. And Craig Buck, you know, he, he wasn't wearing a helmet. Um, if he had been wearing a helmet, he probably wouldn't have had as bad of injuries. I mean, he was severe traumatic brain injury. Uh, he basically shredded his whole, his whole artery on the side of his neck broke about every bone you could imagine inside of his body. And what happened was he was coming down this hill in Santa Barbara, which is pretty much known to be kind of like a closing speed type hill into the ride. He'd been riding for many, many miles. And it was kind of the last kind of go down the hill to, um, to uh, finish your ride. And we really don't know exactly what happened because we weren't there. There's no video of it. Our client couldn't speak about it afterwards. And the only real testimony that we would have had would have been from the defendant driver who was, we were obviously alleging was at fault. But what ended up turning that case, you know, we looked at the case and we're like, I don't even think we should file on this. We should just try and write a demand letter and, and get out. But when his injury happened, it hit social media like wildfire. And a gentleman came out of nowhere and uh, I guess the original post 
was from his wife. They had a picture of this guy's truck at the scene from one of the bystanders that came up after who actually was a medical doctor that ended up saving his life. But some guy saw the picture of this truck and he had an identical run-in with this guy like probably six months prior where he was driving on the wrong side of the road trying to push them off of the road. Same guy, same truck, same everything. And they took photographs of this guy, called the police. The police basically did nothing to him because they couldn't really corroborate it or prove it. And that ended up being instrumental in proving the entire case. It was almost like we were just saying, hey, bad actor then, bad actor now, and scared the, uh, scared the insurance company into paying a pre-filing a substantial seven-figure settlement on the guy's uh, personal policy and umbrella policy. But yeah, man, the, the bicycle cases are gnarly. The, the drivers on the road, they do not care. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's pretty sad. Yeah, I've tried to, to raise some awareness and, and have shown pictures even of what I look like. My, my, my face hit the car that um, hit me. So my, you know, it, it, it did a, a fair bit of damage and I looked pretty bad. So I, I'll use that picture, but you know, it's funny because it's just a lot like anything else. I think if you, if you don't personally experience it, it, it is hard to connect with. Although I, I did get some people that said, Hey, I, you know, because of what happened to you, I'm, I'm much more aware of pedestrians using the roadways and, you know, I, I think part of it is, is just continuing to bring awareness to, Hey, you know, that could be your sibling, that could be, you know, your mother or father, that could be, you know, your best friend. Um, it, it's a person out there that, you know, when um, a 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 pound vehicle hits a, hits a body, it, it doesn't end well. It just, there's just, there's no protection, right? I always, always tell my wife, um, through my work, it's, I've seen too much, right? So seeing too many bad photos and videos and everything. And so I'm like hyper aware of everything on the road, motorcycles, people on scooters, bicycles, everything. Um, but that's not true for everyone else, you know? So. Well, and especially today with, with people and their phones, because it, it's just scary to see sometimes people, I, I was behind someone recently and they were weaving and I, I thought they were drunk and then, and they were in the far left-hand lane. I went around them in the middle lane and, you know, nose in the phone. My good grief. You know, that's, that's a recipe for killing somebody. For sure. hundred percent. Uh, so I wanted to ask you a bit about your approach to trials and your preparation. Um, anything that you think is different that you would credit your success with in trial that might help other trial lawyers? Uh, sure. So I, motions in Lemonade are key. I mean, this isn't anything anybody knows, but, or excuse me, anything anybody doesn't know, but we file motions in Lemonade, uh, not, not like a ton, right. But on very specific issues, because I feel like oftentimes a lot of lawyers will just throw a bunch of regurgitated motions in front of a judge and the judge has seen them. There's no real factual or legal analysis. And then they just dismiss them out of hand. But we get very specific with ours. One in particular that we filed that um, I'll provide a, an article that I've written to you or that I've written, I'll provide it to you. 
Um, it's on basically persuading your judge to allow you to use electronic presentation and opening statement, whether it's PowerPoint or keynote, but also to basically um, uh, show evidence that you have a reasonable good faith belief is going to be received in trial. So how that looks for us are deposition clips of certain key witnesses, uh, deposition clips of experts, obviously documents and medical records and things like that. But the, the sooner that I can get clips of defense witnesses and in particular defense expert witnesses in front of the jury, the better. Because what's going to happen is the defense attorney is going to stand up at the beginning and he's going to say, hey, look, you know, the plaintiff gets to go first. We want you to be unbiased and you, we, we respect the process and we want you to be patient and wait for our side of the story too. And they'll polish up their experts and say, yeah, they're Stanford graduated, they're Harvard ed educated, they're the best in the business. Just give them a chance to listen to what they say. But what the jury doesn't see is that, you know, a month or two before the trial, you know, you're having to shell out $1,800 an hour for what should have been a 30 minute depot, but is now turned into three hours because they're just going on tangents and they're not answering the questions. You know, I want to show that stuff to the jury and precondition them to say like, hey, all this nonsense about this defense lawyer is telling you about how good and great and honest these people are, they're not. And all their job is, is to come in here and to tell you that everything's pre-existing, that it's all degenerative in nature, and that, oh, by the way, if you actually believe that this was caused by this particular incident, their bills are too high, so let's slash those two. And I'm not saying every plaintiff's expert's an honest guy either, because they're not. They aren't, right? I've seen, I've seen plaintiff's experts get indicted for fraud, for Christ's sake. But, you know, my experience, again, this is my experience, on the defense side, I have yet to have a single trial where a defense expert came in there and actually just gave reasonable concessions. I'm not saying come in there and say, hey, this is everything that Mr. Poulter saying is true, but just give reasonable concessions. So back to the point of your question, that's what I want to get in front of the jury. That's why I talk about like the bad actor stuff. I want to show, you know, what they did, how we got here, and in particular, who is the people, who are the people on their side that are going to be telling their story? Who are the authors? And how can we make them look bad? Or, or how do they make themselves look bad? And how can we show that to the jury? And then on top of that, I think the presentation of the evidence is key. What witnesses are you calling in in what order? You know, there has to be a method to your madness. You can't just throw people up there or else it's not going to make sense. You know, I use the analogy, it can't be a Quentin Tarantino movie where he starts with chapter 11 and then comes back to chapter one and, you know, everything in between. And then it all makes sense at the end. People don't think like that. You know, yes, for entertainment, watching a movie, it's exciting and it makes sense that way. But in terms of people who don't want to be there, who are serving jury duty, they want you to get in, make your point, get out, and they want to go home. And so the presentation of your witnesses and the evidence is key. And the way that I do it is uh, in California, you can do what's called uh, a witness on 776. It's evidence code 776. And what that means essentially is that the plaintiff can call any defense witness they want in their case in chief, and they can treat them as a hostile witness and use leading questions. So right out of the gate, I'm calling the company's PMK. I'm calling any of their employees that have personal knowledge of anything and witnesses. And right out of the gate, I'm 
very pointed, direct leading questions, getting the information out. Then I'll move, if I have other liability experts like mine, I'll call my liability expert. Then I'll do the doctors. I call a lot of treating physicians. I don't like to use just one retained expert that kind of sums everything up. It's a pain in the ass to try to get them there, but ultimately they'll work with you and they'll come. And then finally, last but not least, I'll call my plaintiff. And I always call my plaintiff last because I figured if I've done my job up until that point with all the other witnesses, there's really not that much the plaintiff can do to screw it up, right? I mean, they really, really have to do something dumb, uh, like basically change a yes to a no and lie on the stand. If I've done my job right up until that point, there's really not that much the defense expert's going to be able to pull out of them, or excuse me, the defense lawyer's going to be able to pull out of them that's going to ruin their case. So, you know, in, in looking at the cases that, that you've handled and the results that you've gotten, um, it seems like some of your approaches are unique in, in how you fashion your your arguments. It, do you have any upcoming trials that you can talk about uh, that your approach might be unique to? Yeah, so um, we actually just finished one last month. It was a negligent excessive force security case in Van Nuys. We got a $2.3 million verdict, great little verdict. Um, Highest offer on that case was 150K. And the, the unique challenges that were presented in that case were that um, the defense for two years leading up to trial had denied liability. You know, the, the basic facts of the case were that this young 20 year old security guard was hired to basically serve a post at a luxury apartment uh, unit downtown Los Angeles. Our guy was a jewelry store owner. Some kids stole jewelry from him. He chased after them into the alleyway. And in this public thoroughfare alleyway, this security guard decided to play hero. And he body slammed her client, shredded his knee, back injury, the whole nine yards, whatever. So the issue in the case though, the interesting issue in the case was that they had denied liability for two years, right? It wasn't our fault. This guy acted outside the course and scope of his employment. Uh, we never trained him to do that stuff. It's not our fault. So we get to trial and in California, you can do a mini opening statement before you get to question the panel of jurors. So there's 70 people in the room and you can give, instead of reading a statement of the case, it lets both parties give a two to three minute mini opening of what they think the case is about. So I stand up there in front of 70, 80 people and I say, hey, facts of the case, you know, this is a disputed liability case. Um, they're not, they've never admitted any wrongdoing. They haven't offered to pay for anything. Yada, yada. The defense lawyer stands up immediately after me and says, you know, I don't know what Mr. Poulter's talking about. He must not know his case very well because we accept responsibility and we admit that we did wrongdoing. We just think that you need to decide whether or not the plaintiff is comparatively at fault for his actions of chasing after these thieves as well. And I was floored at what he said. Um, you know, no heads up, no nothing. And so on a break at lunch, I address it with the judge and I'm like, judge, this is bullshit. You know, he's making me look like an idiot in front of the jury. Like I don't know my case. He never gave me any heads up on this. He never told me anything. He's saying that this is complete gamesmanship. The judge uh, expressed concern and he requested additional briefing on the issue. And we, and I can provide that to you as well. We can put it up on, on uh, whatever website you have. But essentially, 
I convinced the judge that to give an evidentiary sanction against the defendant based on California law and the, the gamesmanship and the sandbagging. And so what the evidentiary sanction was is that even though they're now admitting liability, I still get to put on all of my liability evidence because otherwise it'd be irrelevant, right? And that's the good shit. That's the stuff that makes people mad, right? And it's, it's a great tactic by the defense, but if you do it right, if you do it about a week or a month before, then there's nothing really we can do about it. But the judge sanctioned them. I got to put on all the liability evidence. And in addition to that, he allowed me to not only mention that the first time they were admitting liability was on the day of many openings, but that that was the first time I'd ever heard about it. And he also let me question his own clients on the stand as to whether or not they personally were accepting responsibility and not just the lawyer. And the corporate representatives all said the same thing. They said, no, we didn't do anything wrong. So now you've got a lying lawyer, you've got a guy trying to pull the wool over their eyes, and you've got a corporate defendant that's not apologetic for what happened to our sweet 68-year-old client. And uh, it, was, it was just a perfect storm. It was, it was really, really fun. So you have built a, a really successful practice. Uh, what's one tip you would give other trial lawyers that's part of your secret to success of building your own personal practice? Trying cases. Trying cases, 100%. It's that, it's that simple. Um, but trying the ones that make sense, right? Um, look, it's, if it makes sense to settle the case, then settle it, obviously. I mean, we, we're not trying every single case that we have, but we I look at cases that come through the door and I'm like, if the client will let me, I'm gonna try that case. And the only way that you're going to build a practice, make a name for yourself, actually maybe strike some fear in the heart of an insurance company or, or an insurance defense lawyer is if you try cases and you get results. And, um, you know, it's, I kind of, my analogy for trying cases is like, I tell people all the time, <laughs> cause like a month, like probably about a week before trial happens and I'm just writing thick of prep. I'm like, I don't know why I do this shit. I'm nervous. I'm getting no sleep. I'm moody. My wife and I are arguing all the time because I'm just a, a miserable person to be around because I'm so stressed out. But then the second that I get in it, it's like, you know, imagine if you're a professional athlete and all you did is practice, but you never played the game. Trial's the game for me. And it's like when the lights come on, it's time to perform. And it's, it kind of goes back to my upbringing with my dad and, and everything that we did to bond was around competitive sports. And it's, it's the same thing, just a different arena. You know, I, mean, I remember when I was a little kid, this is how competitive my dad is. When I was a little kid that I was, when we went from, pitching machine baseball to the kids actually throwing live baseballs. I was terrified, right? I didn't want to get hit by the ball. And so my dad in batting practice would, he bought 10 squishy foam balls and put them in the bucket of real baseballs. And he would intentionally throw them at me to precondition my mind to the notion that, Hey, it's not that big of a deal. And it's kind of crazy, but it worked. And so that kind of, you know, that competitive drive and a different way of thinking about things and, and being able to overcome your stresses and your fears is equally applicable to what we do in the courtroom. 
And, um, you know, it, it's little, little anecdotal moments from your life like that that you can draw on to give you the confidence in yourself to go out there and try cases and get results. And at the end of the day, if you just, if you're, if you're honest to the jury, you don't waste their time and you don't oversell your case and you've got a good plaintiff, they're going to find a way to help out your client. It's just, they're going to do it. All right. uh, A couple more questions uh, and we'll wrap up. Um, So this one, um, I I always ask guests, it is a bit self-surfing admittedly, but um, I'm curious about what are the most difficult issues that are settlement related that you face when you're resolving cases? Yeah, great question. So um, probably 99% of our cases are referred by other lawyers. So by the time they get to us, the treatment's pretty much done um, for the most part. So that can be a blessing and a curse, right? Because some some lawyers that have the cases before they send them off to us to, to try them or you know, maybe their settlement efforts have failed. They're just, they have a case manager just sending them out to get treatment. And whether it's through like an employment insurance fund or whether it's through Medi-Cal or whether it's through private liens and everything like that, you can blink and rack up two, $300,000 in medical bills on a case that may not need it. And so from a settlement perspective, um, you know, you know, we just worked recently on the Donald Gable case where we had you negotiate the VA loan for us. And it's, it becomes challenging when you look, you're at that balance, like, do I try the case or do I not? But you've got the medical bills that are here, you know, your costs are here, then your attorney's fees are here and the client's like, well, what the hell am I going to take home? And so the challenges for me are really the lean negotiations. And so the, the service that you guys provide on the VA stuff is fantastic. I had no idea it was that involved. I used to just pick up the phone and see what I could knock off. And then after our calls, I realized just how much more involved it was and how much it made sense to kind of just delegate that task to people who actually know what they're doing as opposed to me just picking up the phone and saying, hey, can you, can you knock a little off the top? But I think lean resolution for me is probably the number one you know, notorious thing that I deal with when trying to sell cases. It's amazing how really complicated that is when you drill down into it. Uh, you know, you, you've got Medicare, you've got Medicaid, you've got military, you've got FIBA, which are federal employees. Uh, it's, and you know, the law is different, uh, the ERISA and the ERISA plans, of course, you know, the law is different and you, you got to really, be able to to understand the game that's got to be played to resolve all of those and to expect trial lawyers to understand that in addition to everything else, you know, is it's sort of like, you know, putting the responsibility on a trial lawyer to open up every estate in a wrongful death case or, you know, I mean, there's other people that are experts in those niches, which is why, you know, for for most law firms, handling that stuff is is really not um, a good use of their time and resources. Uh, so a last question, and, uh, this is open-ended for you to say whatever the heck you want to say, since the podcast called trial lawyer view, what, what is your view as a trial lawyer? What is my view as a trial lawyer? Oh shit. Um, you know, 
I think that you have to be, I think you have to be humble. I think you have to be uh, gracious. Um, you know, I, I, for me, <laughs> I have basically two sides. I, I call one deposition Brian and one trial Brian. You know, deposition Brian is a shark that doesn't put up with anything. Uh, I'm going to get the answer that I came to get, but you can't do that in trial. Um, and so, but it's not fake. It's, it's not me putting on uh, a mask, so to speak. It's just, it's a different style of advocacy. So I think my view of being a trial lawyer in the courtroom, you have to be gracious, you have to be humble, uh, you have to be prepared. Um, and I think that as long as you get a, a little bit of luck and pick a good jury and you are prepared, humble, and gracious, and you have a good client or a good family, at the end of the day, the jury's gonna find a way to help them out. And really, um, you can't really ask for much more, especially from people that are coming from the jury room. They don't wanna be there. They find out it's a personal injury case. They think I'm an ambulance chaser. Uh, they think my client's a faker and a liar. And then you blink, you whittle down 70 people to 12 plus two or three alternates. You last anywhere from a week to four weeks. And through the course of that trial, you gain their trust by maintaining credibility at all times. And then at the end of it, you're asking people to award money for injuries, which is very, it's a very interesting and kind of weird process when you think about it. Um, but, you know, it's our system of justice and it, it, I think it's one of the best in the world. And I think that juries will speak to the validity of your client's claims by virtue of the amount of money that they award, even if ultimately at the end of the day, your client, you know, doesn't get any of that money for whatever reason. But my view of being a trial lawyer is, is standing up for what you think is right and um, just being a good person in the process. Well said, love it. Uh, so you mentioned that you you do wind up uh, co-counseling and getting a lot of cases referred. Uh, if somebody you know, listening to the podcast wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way that they can reach out to, to work with you? Yeah, just call me straight on my cell phone, 310-487-5501. Um, got a phrase, never not working. I take calls at all hours of the day and night. Uh, as I'm sure you do the same with your business. Um, and so, yeah, call me 310-487-5501, or you can just look us up on our website at stalwartlaw.com and that's S-T-A-L-W-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. And we'll include uh, links to the website and contact information in the show notes for today's podcast. Thank you again uh, for Brian for joining me today and we'll see everybody on the next episode. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Trial Lawyer Review. You can find more at triallawyerreview.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.